All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Today, we have a, 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 an alumni of the podcast many times, author and farmer Chris Smidge from over in England. Um, and we're going we're gonna to ramble around a, a few different topics today. I just want to give a, a brief kind of thumbnail sketch outline of what we want to talk about today, what this podcast is going to try to talk about. Um, there's, a, there's, you know, these back and forth debates that happen all the time between people who promote more like small scale uh, neo-peasant agriculture or whatever you want to call it, and a more, you know, eco-modernist standpoint or a more high-tech centralized standpoint. And there's all these sort of volleys and debates and stuff going back and forth. And what we, what the first thing we want to do, I think, in the conversation is to try to drill down into the, some of the facts and data and some of the arguments and get some grounding that we can all work from basically about the feasibility of, of traditional or territorial food webs or, or smallholder agriculture, in other words, to feed a large proportion of the world's population. And we want to talk about where we are on that continuum in terms of our, you know, overall our global population dependence on small scale producers versus our dependence on the big ag, big industrial food system and get on the same, I guess, on the same page in terms of the facts of the situation and where we might go in the future. And then, you know, maybe we'll try to ramble and psychologize a little bit about why these points can be really hard to get across the advantages of a small farm future and that sort of thing. It can be really, really difficult to convince people that this is a good idea worth pursuing. Um, and you get really strong pushback. And I think whenever you get really strong reactions, it's, it's, it's a clue to maybe like group psychology or culture or something like that. And there's some interesting issues there because that provides, I think, a lot of barriers to actually enacting a lot of these constructive solutions. So I think we'll talk a little bit about why it can be so hard to, to, to get through to some people about some of these arguments. And then finally, um, the flip side of that is there's probably a lot of people out there who are already on board or would be close to being on board with uh, you know, bioregional self-provision or small-scale agriculture or what have you. But there are various headwinds and barriers to getting involved, and we're really interested to try to look, take a big tent approach and think about who all, it may, you know, maybe just focusing on the U.S. and the U.K. or the Anglis, Anglophone world or something, but who all, what all kinds of people might be interested to get involved with this kind of stuff? What are the barriers that they face? How do we reach out in a broader way, and how do we get more people involved in this kind of stuff? So that's sort of the overall sketch. And we might hit all that stuff. We might not, whatever. It should be a fun conversation. But anyway, if, if we could just kind of start out, Chris, if you would not mind to go into a little bit of detail about this, uh, particularly this debate that's come up in some of the literature of whether, so there are some claims that are out there that's something like about 70% of the food, of the food nutrition that gets into people's bellies comes from small scale, smallholder, traditional type agricultural food webs. And then there are some other studies uh, from the FAO and from other academics that suggest that this number is a huge overestimate and it's maybe only about a third of the food. And that, you know, so that would suggest that our dependence on big ag and the big industrial food chain is, 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 is quite a bit versus this other argument that says maybe we're less dependent than we think we are on the big ag chain. So if you would kind of sketch out that, that scenario for us and tell us based on your research and writing where you think the strength of the argument lies. Right. Yeah. Interesting, tough questions. I mean, I mean, I suppose I'd, I'd want to first of all put some boundaries around it in, in, in the, you know, I think 
a lot of us in the kind of small holding, um, you know, agrarian localism space, you know, there's this kind of pressure sort of, you know, prove that prove that it can feed the world. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the 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 numbers aren't that great on the other side. You know, it's it's like, um, you know, we know that there's kind of a lot of food being produced in the world one way or the, or the other. But, you know, kind of big scale industrial ag, you know, there's not a lot of numbers around on that side of the fence either. To You know, uh, as you probably know, I've been engaged in a bit of a debate with George Monbiot recently. And a lot of people are sort of saying to me, you know, prove your numbers, Chris. And, you know, you look through his book and there's, there's basically no numbers you know, in terms of the productivity of kind of high tech industrial ag, you know, apart from one number about precision fermentation so-called that he kind of gets wrong anyway you know so there's that there, there's kind of that and and you know there is a bigger context of of kind of huge overproduction in the global food system you know like one of the big problems historically has been um you know uh what do we do with all this grain that we're producing in the world and you know how do farmers stay in business when food prices are so cheap and and you know let's you know let's turn it into livestock fodder or biofuels or whatever and meanwhile you know as we people are going hungry you know so it's kind of like you know sort of how we frame this debate about numbers i think is sort of important in in the sense of not getting you know not getting framed as 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 um kind of you know you smallholder folk need to prove your numbers because you know we don't really know the numbers we don't know the numbers in terms of energy futures and climate change and so on and so on and so on so i just want to sort of say that as a kind of preamble you know but you know nevertheless it's good to um you know have some sense of um uh, you know the lie of the land and the productivity i mean if it were the case that you know small scale peasant farmers were occupying most of the land globally and producing only a tiny proportion of the food then you know sure that wouldn't look good as an argument for a small farm future um but that's not really the case as you say a figure that you hear banded around quite a lot is something like 70 or 80 percent um of of the food um globally is produced by the so-called peasant food web you know sort of local um sort of territorial food systems um that was a figure um originally i think it came from the etc group and um uh sort of about 15 years ago and various i mean I, I have to say i'm not a real expert on the on, on on the numbers behind this i've just sort of you know kept track of the debate a little bit um that got picked up by some you know, kind of multinational groups you know statutory like ifad and so on and then as you say that there, there have been some more recent studies that have um that that have questioned it and and given figures like 30 percent um I mean, one point to make about all of all of these um, uh, uh, studies, they all seem to concur with the fact that um, there's a relatively higher proportion of food produced by the peasant food web relative to land occupation. So I think even the low figure, even the thirty percent figure, that was it was something like thirty percent of of the world's food on twenty five percent of the land um you know so um so i think you know when you have this debate with people there's very often this assumption that uh you know peasant farming sort of low input smallholder farming is less productive per acre than industrial farming you know it must be right because it's kind of you know low tech 
but the reality is that that's not the case um you know um job rich for full skilled labor intensive small scale farming can be um it, you know if anything it's more productive per acre um you know the, the, than the big uh, the, than the sort of big scale industrial system and that's a really important point to bear in mind when people say oh can it feed the world i mean whether or not you know what proportion of the world it's feeding at the moment you know that is driven very much by sort of economic and political factors so you know the the question of whether it can in theory feed the world you know my answer is yeah yeah hell hell yeah it can you know because you know you can produce more food um per, per unit area so the debate i mean one of the problems is um as we were saying i think before we started the recording you know there's a lot of kind of official top-down data you know that's the trouble with numbers they kind of become very seductive and and, when, and once you start drilling down into where the numbers come from you know they're always a little bit vaguer than um you know in this sort of big headline 70 percent or 30 percent or whatever a lot of it is based on official government agricultural statistics and that tends to be biased towards the bigger scale um you know towards people who are sort of monocropping and, and 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 that's another issue that you know perhaps we need to acknowledge is that um you know i think you guys you you're both small um small holders as well i think you know no i mean i know from uh, reading jason's um uh, on Twitter and so on. I mean, he's planting all sorts of different things, you know, so am I. We've got, you know, hundreds of different crops we're growing um, on our site. And so it's very easy to sort of look at the industrial food chain. You know, it's producing um, mostly the, you know, a handful of the big crops, you know, wheat, rice, corn, soy, whatever. And you can say, well, you know, it's so many tonnes per, um, per hectare, tonnes per acre. And you can sort of calculate that out. You know, if I tried to calculate what I was producing on my holding, um, it would be uh, virtually impossible because there's there's so many different little components and so many um, you know um, so many different reasons why you're growing different crops that you can't necessarily just reduce to a to a yield figure and it doesn't you know it doesn't get reported um, and certainly globally you know small scale peasant farmers you know they're not necessarily reporting these figures so you know we have to sort of go beyond yield and you know ask questions about um you know food resilience um um you know um seed biodiversity all sorts of other reasons um and, and you know micronutrients as well you know a lot of people are being um you know there's there's a lot of um malnutrition associated with um uh, you know, vitamin deficiencies or, or you know, micronutrient deficiencies because people are basically just eating rice, for example, you know. Um, so it gets very complicated. But anyway, leaving all that aside, you know, this kind of 30% versus 70% thing, I mean, it depends. There's a lot of cutoff points. I mean, you know, how small is a small farm? The 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 30% the figure that you mentioned, that was based on a study that was... Um, uh, according to some of the critiques of it, it was biased towards the richer countries. I think it, you know, it looked at 60 countries of which 30 were in Europe, you know, which is a, a you know, not a place where there's a lot of small peasant farms. Uh, its cutoff point for small farms was two hectares. So uh, what's that, five or six acres. Uh, so that's pretty small. Um, 
and you know it was based on some of it was based on on kind of imputing um productivity on the basis of area you know rather than actually a a, a sort of detailed accounting of, of the crops so there's there was another study i have to grab my notebook because i'm i'm terrible at remembering figures off the top of my head but um yeah there was a study that basically drilled into um some of those the, the same figures um but they um they looked at farms up to 10 hectares so you know that's a big farm by the standards uh, you know in in a lot of global south um countries you know that's a big farm but still probably a relatively local farm you know feeding into the um you know the local food web so they reckon that 55% of the calories, um, and again, that raises questions, but 55% of the calories are grown by farms of 10 hectares or less on 40% of the global agricultural land. So that's a kind of, you know, I think that's a reasonably authoritative figure that sort of in, interpolates between the, the 30 and, and the 70%. Um, but as I say, you know, I think it's, Personally, I think all that we need to take from this is that um, small scale farms are doing a pretty good job. Um, you know, they are producing a lot of the world's food. And and again, you know, there are some critiques. I think the way it's framed is that 70 percent of the world's people mostly depend on a local food web. So there are ways in which the industrial food system leaks into that, you know, for example, in producing oils or, you know, certain kinds of livestock fodder or whatever. So obviously any duality is, you know, is more complicated in reality. There isn't just the peasant food web and the industrial food chain, you know, they, they interpenetrate in various ways. But, you know, I think I think we shouldn't get too hung up on the exact number. Nobody knows the exact number, but I think certainly the sort of official data that we have underestimates the productivity of, you know, peasant farmers, smallholders, you know, amateur gardeners and so on. But I think it gives us enough to say, well, they're producing a pretty big chunk of the world's food and they're producing it on a on a smaller area than the, you know, relatively speaking, you know, per per acre than the industrial food chain. And the reason that, you know, there's not more of this is essentially sort of economic and political reasons sort of, you know, going into, you know, some of your later questions, perhaps, you know, the, you know, the, there there's enormous pressure, um, you know, the, the odds are stacked against small scale farmers in many ways in terms of the, the larger system. So the fact that they're producing that much is, you know, is incredible, really, you know, it's an amazing achievement. And I think, I would say that's kind of all we need to know. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we can have a, a a wider discussion about whether it's better to, you know, increase that proportion or whether, you know, there's still a role for the industrial um, food chain. But I think, you know, what we can infer from that is that, um, you know, if we wanted to increase the amount of of small scale local um, kind of territorial food systems to feed the world, we could. And in fact, we could probably do it better because, as I say, you know, most of the industrial food chain is taken up by the big commodity crops that, yeah, you know, they've they've got calories and they've got protein, but they don't necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily food, you know, they're not necessarily giving us, um, you know, the full nutrition that we need. So I don't know if that kind of answers the question but that would be my my way of sort of charting a way through that that's really good i really like the way that you put you put the question when one way of thinking about the 70 percent figure 
it's not saying that 70% of people are dependent on local food webs, 30% of people are, are dependent on the industrial food chain, but rather 70% dependence on local food systems versus, I was thinking about my experiences in rural Thai farming communities. And for example, I mean, Thailand is a place, if you've ever been there, I think it would be impossible to starve to death. Any time of day <laughs> or night, even in a r far rural area, you're never more than a few miles from a, stand, a place that's open, that's selling food. I mean, any time of the day or night. And there's food being grown and produced everywhere. And, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, there's, there's lots of food for sale in all the little villages and stuff. But, of course, people are getting like cooking oil, you know, mm. from, from the industrial system and then a lot of local produce. And I was thinking specifically that it's very common, you know, since the Green Revolution hit Thailand back in like the 80s and 90s. And a lot of farming switched to more kind of monocultural contract farming, you know, for for sale. But like every household, every every farming household has a kitchen garden with, you know, a, a, whole, a wide variety of stuff in it that they're producing for their house. And usually they don't use any pesticides or anything on that stuff. Like they'll use it on the stuff that they're growing for sale, but not for the stuff that they just produce for their household. And my thinking yeah. is that, that home production, like probably in Thailand, you, you know, you have these big top-down data sets that will look at production of all these commodity crops at the larger scale, even from smallholder, you know, smallholder or medium holder farmers in Thailand, but you're not going to see the produce from those kitchen gardens. And I wanted to see if um, I wanted Jason to weigh in to see, because there's probably some terminology around this. And I think that this phenomenon maybe is part of the, the challenge in this conversation is that so much of, of, of food production along with, probably so many other economic activities are essentially invisible to a lot of these top-down data sets. And, you know, it's, it's really popular to look at like our world and data and like these big data sets that total up all this kind of stuff. And a lot of my colleagues in the research world, like that's the kind of go-to for looking at that stuff. But I was wondering, maybe Jason, you can talk about some of your experience um, of, of the, the components of life in a lot of countries that that's just not visible. It's not perceptible to this method of data collection. And therefore, you know, the analyses that come from the top down are often very distorted mm. because they're missing a big part of the picture. I mean, it's easy if you have one giant farm, mm. you know, growing corn, it's, it's one number. It's one easy thing basically to measure that. Right. But if mm. you've got a bunch of tiny little, you know, like it's hard to measure all that stuff. So mm. what is it called when you have like a statistical distribution where the bulk of something is actually made up of tiny little things that are hard to measure individually? Like that's actually a thing, right? Yeah. Well, so I can describe, for example, I spent a summer doing a rural agricultural livelihood survey in Zambia, uh, helping out with that. Not the whole country. I was, you know, part of a team responsible for one region. And there we did try to collect all of the, the data. Like we, we basically collected like every single crop how much do you produce? How much goes for sale? So, you know, we, we recognize some households are more Antarctic than others that they produce for their own consumption. Um, the issue with it is that when you get to the global data sets, um, they kind of by definition have to be more standardized. And my my sense, I'm not sure about this, but my sense is that, uh, it, you know, it's easier to focus more on the commodity crops when you're doing like cross-country analysis. Um, these kind of more rich data sets that, you know, I was part of collecting, um, they are richer. They, they do try and capture uh, a bit of everything, but they're not, they're not used as much 
uh, my understanding for cross-country analysis. Some people try to standardize and, and equate data sets across countries, but it's a very difficult process. Um, and, and so, and, you know, I, and I can describe, I guess, the, the purpose of these kinds of surveys is that the general kind of policy framing is, you know, kind of implies that structural transformation is a good thing uh, or it's inevitable and one or the other, meaning that, you know, these, you know, peasant areas should probably increase their productivity, should increase their use of inputs like seeds, you know, seed varieties from outside or fertilizers, uh, pest control, uh, machinery, things of that nature. And the implication there is that, you know, you're going to have less by doing that, you're going to be more productive. You're going to have less uh, farmers on the land um, and you're going to become more like the West, you know, the, the kind of industrial food system. Uh, and so even uh, a lot of the organizations that collect this richer data, the ideology, I would say, is already kind of baked in that, you know, highly Antarctic households, you know, that's not ideal. You know, that's my, my general sense of where people are coming from. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, Josh. Uh, that's, yeah, that, that's a little so, bit of my experience there. So the households that are more, what's the word, Antarctic? Antarctic, yeah. And you say there's there's a kind of in, in, inbuilt psychological bias that that's that, that we want to move away from that. Why? Like, why is that? Where does that come from? Like, because they're, they're seen as well, they're kind of self-reliant. That's better. Why, why right. Not? Well, well, they're seen as, as poor and wanting to develop. Um, you know, they're seen as not as productive as they could be uh, in terms of some measure of productivity. Now, it's interesting that we mentioned land productivity. The, the other major indicator of productivity is labor productivity, right? And, you know, uh, I think, it, well, it depends. That depending on which one you emphasize is kind of a, it's kind of a framing ideological question. Um, and, you know, labor productivity is, you know, lower than they would like, <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, they, they generally see a trend of, okay, the West is wealthier. Uh, you know, many countries in Africa are very poor. How do we how do we make them less poor? Well, we have to increase their their uh, agricultural productivity. How do we do that? Well, you know, we give them inputs, right? We teach them, more, you know, uh, we increase their their commodity production uh, as a nation. We increase their foreign exchange, you know, uh, capacity through more commodity production, and so that's that's just kind of the implicit idea of how development happens for most like development econ economists. Um, so even if that richer data is being collected, uh, I don't know if it's being it's being utilized in a already baked in ideological frame. I would say. Yeah, I, can I just sort of reinforce some of the things Jason said there? I mean, I think that, you know there's a really key historical context here, and and it and and also kind of geo geographical, where you know, like with us living in the UK or the US, and particularly people living in big cities, you kind of look around you and think, well, you know, there's no way that we could produce, you know, local food here. It has to be sort of big industrial food chains. But, you know, as you guys have both been saying, if you're in Thailand or Zambia or, you know, even in um, rural parts of of, of, of some, um, you know, high income countries, it's a, it's a very different picture. But, you know, you don't necessarily sort of get that view if you're, you know, in New York or London or wherever. But, um, 
but yeah, the, the the historical point is the kind of transition, you know, industrialization. So it's like, you know, if we go back to, you know, the development of England in the Industrial Revolution or or the US sort of late 19th, early 20th century, there was a huge push to get people out of farming. And, and, and like you say, labor productivity is key. You know, you can um, you can be very productive in terms of land and feed your family, but then you're, you know, you, that labor is on the farm and the big push has been to get labor off the farm and get it doing, um, you know, doing something else in the economy, you know, uh, historically um, you know, industrial production. And that worked out great historically for, for, for Britain in the 19th century and for the US in the 20th century. But there's kind of, you know, we've got this sort of, we, we've got into this kind of you know one trap mind about it that this is the only route to 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 prosperity and wealth and given that you know the way that you do that you know if you want to increase yields um um you know by any measure you basically have to increase inputs um and you know the, the great advantage of labor is that it's a kind of non-polluting um input whereas most of the other inputs you know irrigation can be or you know maybe non-polluting is one word or or renew you know non-renewable is another word you know so many of the inputs in terms of getting people out of agriculture uh and making it um you know more productive per unit labor you know they tend to be drawing down typically on fossil fuels or on water um, and tend to be producing a lot of um, agricultural pollution as well. And that, you know, that isn't sustainable long term for the world as a whole. And also, you know, it's not really feasible for all countries to develop, you know, the, so much of that kind of industrial development was um uh was was based um I, I think you said in your email when we set this up josh you know that the affluence uh in one place kind of depends on poverty somewhere else so you know this is this whole kind of um de-agrarianization industrialization has kind of been based on 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 a kind of imperial model on a on uneven development and you can't sort of you can't generalize that worldwide in terms of the political economy or in terms of the um you know the, the the kind of energetics and 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 sort of material flows of it so i think you know we have to move to it to a different model and you know increasingly people you know people are not moving out of agriculture in a lot of countries into prosperous industrial jobs they're moving into precarity and underemployment and um you know and, and and sort of challenging kind of forms of rural to urban and back to rural sort of transient migrations and so on you know so the whole thing is um you know we we tend to have this kind of 19th century um model in our minds of of kind of industrialization and development but it's not really you know it's not really where we're at in the world globally now anymore in my view so you mentioned a couple of really salient things there. One was the the dependence of the industrial food chain on fossil fuels and its creation of pollution and other aspects of environmental unsustainability. You also mentioned the 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 sort of um, the direction of of material flows for creating affluence in some place, creating poverty and stuff in other places. So kind of two problems of environmental unsustainability also creating this real inequity in terms of power and wealth and that sort of thing. So let me ask you about this. There, so the sort of uh, the centralized technocratic approach or the eco-modernist approach would say, yes, and these kind of problems can be solved 
by innovative new technologies in agriculture. I I want to I want to see if you can do your best to steel man this kind of approach to where potentially the fossil fuel or unsustainable input dependence and the exploitative aspects could be mitigated or 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 brought under control through innovation and through technology. What what do you have to say about that? I'm probably not the best person to steal man that, uh, but I, I can try. I mean, you know, I, I suppose one example would be something like the whole debate about golden rice, you know, so you have, um, you know, you, you have this um, um, genetic engineering technology to, um, to um, get vitamin, uh, vitamin A uh, is vitamin A, isn't it? Yeah. Into, into rice. So the logic of it is that there are people we were basically too poor to eat anything but rice. Um, and so, you know, kind of the same point I was making earlier, you know, so they're getting enough calories probably, but they're not getting the vitamins and, and, and micronutrients. Um, and, um, you know, and the reason for that is basically poverty. Um, uh, so one approach, um, you know, is to um, equalize, uh, you know, is to, is to have anti-poverty measures. Um, and that could, you know that can take a variety of forms but i mean ultimately it means that people are gonna you know need to have more varied diets they're going to be needing to eat some some vegetables and some sort of meat and fish or you know uh, or whatever um the other approach is is the is the technocratic approach like like you say well okay so there's you know these poor people presenting with vitamin a deficiency you know let's and and we know that all the that they can only eat rice um you know, let's let's engineer vitamin A in, into rice. Problem solved. And you know, I, it is. I you know, I think it's a genuinely well motivated humanitarian approach. It's like, well, you know, it's hard to solve poverty, but it's um, potentially easy to um, um, you know to 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 get this biotech in into the rice. But it's a very. Um, I mean, there's quite a few problems with it. Um, but you know, essentially, it's it's not dealing with the underlying problem. Um, it's it's you know, it's a kind of techno fix um, that might work. But then it you know, it it, it it's not a kind of radic. It's not radically addressing the underlying problem. It's you know, it's kind of um, picking off sort of one problem with with a tech means. Um, but you know, that's that's one thing. A lot of the you know, a, a lot of the the um, other forms of of technocratic you know food system fixes like the stuff i've been writing about recently um bacterial protein i mean that to my mind is even less um well much much less feasible because it's a very high energy uh, you know it's basically uh saying well we don't need to use sunlight you know we can use electricity uh, and it you know if, if it's going to be sustainable it has to be low carbon electricity and it just doesn't stack up um energetically so one aspect of it, I think, is, you know, if you think that um, we can move to a future of abundant, low carbon electricity, and, you know, some people do, whether it's with nuclear power or, um, you know, massively rolling out um, PV systems and so on, you know, then some of these problems look easier. But there is, you know, the other side, the point you just made about the the genesis of poverty. I mean, it's not you know, it's 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 not just a kind of um, uh, you know poverty isn't caused by um, um, uh, kind of there not being enough capital in the system or there not being enough energy in the system. You know, if anything, it's caused 
by there being a lot of capital and energy in the system, you know, and the only way that you can generate that is to accumulate it at the expense of of other people. I mean, it's, you know, it's not an, an entirely zero sum game, but that's, you know, that's the whole logic of economic growth is that, you know, the people who have the capital, you know, want a return on the capital. And so it, it's an incredibly inefficient way trying to make people richer because you know most of that capital returns to the people that invested in the first place and you know some of it the idea is that it kind of trickles down a little you know which it kind of does a little bit um but you know that it's not a kind of again it's um it's not a radical way to um to address poverty and that you know i'm sorry i'm 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 probably moving from steel man to more well, i wouldn't say straw man but you know that that i think is the sort of the the eco modernist ethos is that it it kind of wants to solve these problems with tech means as a way of not really confronting the, the you know the underlying socioeconomic issue so it's like you know if we can deal with vitamin a deficiency um you know with a bit of biotech um you know it's it that that seems more attractive and easier and we can sort of attract um in you know in funding and investment and and generate interest rather than you know kind of banging on about poverty being a problem which uh, <laughs> you know sort of gets us into into trickier politics you know it might, yeah. it might be interesting to speculate on just in general like the appropriate use of technology in kind of a sustainable you know food systems in the future and of course i think we have to look at it directionally both from a kind of industrial western point of view where it's like one or two percent in the united states and then you know some very still agrarian you know regions or countries that are like 70 80 percent right and you know if we think of like okay technology what is the main purpose of technology it's labor saving uh, one way to one way i would frame it and so, you know, what is this balance between labor saving and sustainability in terms of material resource input in, in, into that, right? And, you know, it, it's probably impossible to say, well, okay, you know, if the United States was to go back to, you know, an agrarian, move in an agrarian direction, how agrarian? Like 20% of the population involved in direct food production, 30%. And if we're looking at, say, rural Zambia, where I was, where, you know, in some regions, it's probably 70 or 80% in the rural, you know, farm economy versus non-farm rural economy. Uh, you know, should it stay that way? Or are there some appropriate technologies? And we can speculate on what those are, so maybe small scale tractors or what have you, that would save a little bit of labor there and free up some human capacity to, say, serve the rest of the, the, the farm you know, the, the non-farm rural economy, perhaps making some of these implements, you know, to support the farmers. I am curious if, if, if either of you guys have thoughts on kind of, you know, if we're thinking ideally and, and moving in the direction from both, you know, Western industrial and, you know, say global South agrarian, you know, where where is this kind of equilibrium? I mean, I, I you guys probably know more um from a global south perspective than, than than i do i mean i i suppose my only comment there is is that yeah it would be great to be having that debate i mean even if we could be having that debate would be an improvement on where we now are where there's this kind of assumption that you know the one percent that you you know that we have in the us or the uk is the kind of desirable way to go you know this this kind of whole strange notion that getting labor as much as possible out of agriculture is a good thing and 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 then you know 
I mean, we've talked about this, I think, on 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 other podcasts, you know, that there's so many people feel alienated from, you know, producing food and from the natural world. And, and for sure, if, you know, if you're having to produce your entire subsistence with no um, outside energetic input, you know, that is a hard thing to do. So for sure, we need to have this debate about, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's nice if, it, if we get a choice over it rather than, um, you know, it being foisted on us by by um you know natural or human means but um uh yeah but just to just to be sort of um pushing towards that sense that we actually need more people to be engaged in food production in the global north i mean that would be a nice position to be in um and i think it's probably important to talk about part-time or amateur you know gardening you know food food production you know we sort of got out of this habit that um uh, you know jim thomas who i think we were talking about who wrote a, an interesting intervention into my debate with mombio you know he's making the point that you know there's a lot of food production that goes on in urban um uh, situations in the global south you know particularly with people from far more peasant backgrounds you know in um uh, you know in cities that are a bit more kind of disorderly than we would think of as a sort of modern global north city um so these are people who are not necessarily full-time farmers but they are raising um you know quite a bit of livestock in cities you know quite quite a bit of fruit and veg um and that's something i think we can really amplify um you know right now in the global north like just take an interest you know even if you live in a big city take an interest in food you know can you um you know can you increase uh, your local food production all sorts you know kind of you know sort of urban and suburban permaculture kind of ideas of of getting together with other people and starting to think about you know your own local food possibilities so um you know that's that's i think it's important that that kind of amateur part-time sort of aspect of it but yeah for sure uh you know uh, we need some happy medium ideally between um you know uh, um uh, uh a very high proportion of the population um, being engaged in producing, um, you know, their, their full livelihood, and you know, and almost zero in, um, you know, in, in the global north. Um, on the question of <clears throat> how to think about technology and innovation, I just want to put a pin in a couple of things that we should come back to, and I think for future podcasts. Um, one, uh, Low Tech Magazine. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's really, really good um uh, a little yeah i should read it more than i do yeah, yeah, yeah what yeah. i've read is good yeah yeah this... Josh, you interview you interviewed the founder of that right you might think uh, of the same I, no i haven't yet okay there's a different oh, there's a similar project yeah actually that's that's another one actually there's three i want to mention yeah one is the as the low-tech institute which mm -hmm. is scott johnson in wisconsin i believe and we did interview him yeah so we have a podcast with that Krista Decker is a Dutch guy, I believe, living in Spain, who writes Low Tech Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, he looks at a lot, like he'll do features on on obsolete technologies. Mm -hmm. Which are things that, you know, like this is kind of my orientation, is looking to, you know, the past or the recent past to see what worked, to see what maybe mm -hmm. has been declared obsolete because of changing conditions, because we just started throwing more fossil fuels at the problem. Yeah under conditions with fewer energy resources and things may again make sense as a, you know as a way as a, as a as a hunting ground 
for interesting technologies. Like I'm very obsessed with old technologies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention that. I was also going to mention another guest we need to get on, which is uh, Alexis from the Living Energy Farm in Virginia. They've done a lot of really interesting stuff with DC motors. They call daylight drive. So they can run like a machine shop basically on solar direct to DC motors. And, and it's super, super efficient. And they've come up with systems that can work. And they've worked a lot in Jamaica and some other places. But that's that would be a good topic to kind of dig into. In terms of uh, my my sort of, you know, galaxy brain thinking about technology, is um and this might be kind of hokey to be honest but i'll tell you anyway um nasim taleb introduced this concept of the lindy effect i don't know if you've heard of that but it's basically the idea that any kind of organism like a human a cat a tomato we age in the forward direction meaning like every day that i live i'm getting one day closer to my death but like various types of artifacts actually age in the reverse direction meaning the older they are the more likely they're long to be they're they're, they're likely to be around in the future so like if you ask um, 500 years from now, are people more likely to be reading Harry Potter or the Bible? Well, you probably guess the Bible because the Bible's been around for longer. It's mm -hmm. another way of saying that the failure rate of the new is really, really high. <clears throat> and from my experience mm -hmm. in engineering and academia and just the sort of incentive structure is it's all about innovative and new. You have to be on the cutting edge. You always have to be producing new knowledge and embodying it in new innovations. And it's just new, 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 new. Mm -hmm. And I sort of have the heretical view that, you know, we already know most everything that we need. We already have most all of the tools that we need to solve a lot of these big grand challenges. We just don't like the solutions. You know, we don't like the idea of more people working on farms instead of fewer. And so the engineering magazines I subscribe to will have features on sustainable agricultural robots, you know, that just mm -hmm. go out with sensors and do all our farming because we're meant to just get totally away from that. So my guide is like, let's look at what technologies have worked in the past, what, what things have persisted over huge periods of time. And we do have a lot of really new, interesting research technologies available to us now in this sort of window of history. And is there any way that we can use the scientific methods that we've developed and the instruments that we've developed and things like that to study you know, longstanding things, to try to think about how they might be improved, how they might be adapted. Like to me, that's a fertile ground for innovation rather than trying to come up with some like entirely new microbial uh, wastewater bioreactor to make energy out of poop or for, you know, new protein out of poop or something. It's like, no, 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 you know, let's just think about like my research on is on, it's on charcoal water filtration. Like that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And I just studied it to try to find out how to apply it to modern chemicals like pesticides and other pollutants and stuff like that while maintaining a sort of low-tech approach, artisanal approach. So to me, it's kind of like, I think of science and innovation as supplementing artisan methods, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, you know, as opposed to well, let's create something totally new and, and go, to the, go to the stars or live on Mars or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, let's come back to that. And, and, and maybe unless you guys have more to say on that, let's come back to it. That's a, that's a big topic. I was. Well, gonna... I just wanted to. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just uh, maybe I haven't really got this thought all that well formulated. But certainly, you know, one. I mean, I think you're right about the new, new, new thing, and that's partly a kind of cultural narrative of of modernism that you know I've written about quite a bit, which is problematic. But there's also kind of. Um, you know, I think we've just got so used to having this cheap, abundant energy that we sort of we sometimes get sort of efficiency mixed up with cost, you know, and that something, you know, we devote huge amounts of energetic resources 
um, you know, to 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 producing um, the, the, something, and and I, you know, my feeling with with this kind of um, you know the bacterial protein thing, um, the argument is that it's more efficient in the sense that if you fill a field with solar panels, you collect more photons, you know, than than the plants do, um, and then and that's got to be a, you know, that's a good thing because it, it spares land and and so on and so on and so on. Um, but it kind of misses it, 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 you know. So, so, so then the, the narrative around that is, oh, you know, we've got this technology that's more efficient than photosynthesis. But um, you know, you're not looking at the full energetic costs of that process, and you're not looking at all the sort of upstream and downstream consequences of of, of sort of making the panels and 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 you know the, all the things that plants are doing in in, in the field that you know. That, that they're, they're kind of doing for themselves that, that that you're having to sort of engineer into the system by by going down this kind of PV panel and, and bioreactor thing and, and you know I mean I'm not a engineering or a tech person but so much of this stuff I'm reading at the moment is this kind of wishful thinking of the sort of beyond fossil fuel age which just seems to not really engage with the sort of energetic reality that you know there are these costly energy you know if we're going to store energy from pv panels you know you lose a lot of energy in transition and i think the whole mindset is is still conditioned by the easy availability of energy that comes from you know from the sort of fossil fueled history we're emerging out of and and that kind of throws us off course in in, in a lot of different ways yeah the I, I i feel like in a lot of conversations where it kind of grinds to a halt you hear like the needle scratching on the record is the suggestion that the total our total energy consumption is is going to decline or is going to have to decline right the idea <clears throat> that we can swap swap energy forms by putting out more renewable energy to replace fossil fuel energy but the implicit assumption typically that i find is that you know our energy consumption will still go up or we'll still have access to all we're talking about and i've I talk, I talk about the energy diet, like a kind of crash diet of just having to use much less energy. And I find that's, that's a point where, you know, I get a lot of looks of disbelief. And I think it's conditioned partially by the fact that, you know, we've, we've grown up during this age of like crazy growth in energy mm. and, and everything. So of course mm. we take that for granted as normal, right? Mm. We've seen so much technological development. So of course we take it for granted that, that, you know, People are out there innovating stuff and they'll come up with solutions just in time and stuff like that. And I was having a conversation with my guy at the bank the other day about this stuff. And, you know, and I was and we were getting into this, you know, and I could see he was really being challenged, you know, and I was like, I was like it really all comes down to like the, the phrase, they'll think of something, they'll think of something. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, dude, uh, I thought at a, 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 a big university in environmental engineering. OK, I'm the they. OK, I work with the they. <laughs> They don't know what they're doing. They're not going to think of something. Okay. I, I'm a they, you know, you're going to depend on me. Like, you know, think about that. <laughs> I wish but, there were more they's who were saying the same thing. That... <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a they that admits that the they's don't know what they're doing. You know, in my experience, it's really yeah. it's frightening to think about. But um, uh, I wanted to, so one thing that was kind of alluded to in your last statement that goes along with this idea of energy abundance is the correlation to price and the idea that we sort of expect everything to get cheaper, right? We got more powerful computers for cheaper and we expect things to get cheaper, 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 cheaper. 
And there was a particular thorny point in your exchange recently with George about he took major issue with your suggestion about food prices rising. And he mm-hmm. basically labeled you a psychopath who wants people to starve because they can't <laughs> afford food, right? And 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 so I, I wanted you to kind of un, unpack this a little bit because I was like, well, you know, depending on how many levels out you think, at the first level, if it's more expensive, people won't be able to afford it. So that's correct, right? But if lots of poor people are involved in this basic primary productivity activity, then presumably for them to get for the food to be more expensive, they're getting paid more. So you're lifting the floor. Is that what you were intending? Or can you explain a little bit more how, you know, I mean, I get the idea of cheap food, but then at the, at the same time, you know, I mean, Jason and I are in this position of like, how are we make our little home homesteads pay for themselves economically? We need to charge more, you know? Yeah, well, exactly so. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a few different dimensions to it. I mean, like you say, on the, the, the sort of intuitive thing is, you know, if food prices increase, then that's that's going to be harder um, for poor people. And that's that's kind of true um, um, that, you know, the the. Um, so one part of my argument is sure if if you just look at food prices in isolation that's true but we you know we you know that's not what i'm saying you know you have to look at food prices along with the price of energy and labor and land and housing and um you know money you know investment and so on so you know a figure i again i forget the exact figures but it used to be that something like 20% of, 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 you know, here in the UK, sort of uh, just, just after World War II, households were spending something like 20% of their household income on food. You know, that's now gone down to, uh, you know, I don't know, 5%. I'm kind of inventing these figures because I can't remember the, but, you know, something like that. Um, uh, and, and but, but it's not like that they're, you know, they're richer because of that. It's basically, you know, their money is going to the, to the owners of, of land, the owners of capital, you know, they're, everyone's paying through the nose to, to, to get a roof over their head. So, so yeah, I'm not just saying, uh, you know, let's increase food prices and not worry about any other aspects of the economy. You know, it's a kind of interconnected holistic thing. So I, I guess there's three points here. So that's the first point. The second point is, as you, as you said, yeah, it, it sounds on the, on the face of it that poor people will be worse off if food prices increase but you have to bear in mind that um you know huge numbers of the global poor are actually farmers who are selling to some degree they they are selling their produce commercially and you know there are you know although george sort of you know uh, kind of sounded off about there being no evidence um that the increased food prices benefited the poor actually there is you know there there are studies that show you know essentially because um a lot of the global poor are, are small-scale farmers you know which is still the the most common job you know this, we're still talking about one or two billion people in the world are, are farmers you know so um increased food prices for them is good um uh, because they're getting more um you know more money in their pocket i mean then we get into a potentially a whole discussion about money versus um you know goods in kind that jason was alluding to earlier about you know the kind of autarkic households that probably don't have much 
um, you know, cash floating around, but they they can be better off than a you know a a, a, a poor urban person that has more cash income, but is probably you know has poorer nutrition, uh, you know, in a more precarious existence, and so on and so on. But so anyway, so the second point is. Um, you know where George's argument falls down is he he's not taking account of the fact that there are so many poor people who are farmers, and the third thing is a more kind of longer term historical argument which I think we were alluding to earlier, which is that um, you know if you think of um, global north agriculture's you know U.S. agriculture for example, it's very heavily subsidised both explicitly by you know farm bill type payments and implicitly through fossil fuels you know the kind of externalities of the fossil fuel system so you know the us is a huge global agricultural producer that's producing you know these cheap commodity crops at um at extremely low prices kind of essentially through uh, sort of implicit and explicit subsidies and um you know so global markets are flooded with this cheap um you know cheap commodity crops which undermines the ability of um uh, of local farmers um you know to uh, to be producing um you know local staples they get pushed either out of farming altogether into precarious um you know underemployment rural or urban or they get forced into uh, you, you know this is a sort of global reality of farming is that every part of the world gets forced into producing you know you know for the um you know for the larger sort of global commodity chain whatever product um you know it can most advantageously sell into the global market so you know a lot of a lot of poor um farmers um in global south countries might be you know they might be producing coffee or um you know tropical uh, fruit crops or something and they're incredibly precariously situated in terms of the fluctuations of global market prices you know if the price of coffee goes down then you know they can't uh, you know they can't clothe their kids um or whatever so um um you know so there's been a kind of undermining of um local uh resilience through the flows of cheap global commodity crops as a kind of chronic long-term historical thing so yeah so so those are the kind of thing and, and you know there's, there's there's more specific things going on you know small farmers being price takers you know they have to sell into the market at the point that the you know that the produce is available and that you know so the price is low so you know they're very precariously situated there so you know if prices were higher i mean i'm not an economist so you know i'm I, um you know this is all kind of fairly generalized stuff but yeah it's kind of frustrating to to you know to to be having to have this kind of debate with someone like george and him kind of saying you know Smage obviously doesn't know anything about farm economics. I mean, you know, this stuff is kind of agrarian economics 101, really, you know. Um, um, but, um, you know, it it um, it suits that kind of neo-Malthusian narrative that that he's now um, sort of on the tracks of that, um, you know, we need to produce more food in order to prevent hunger, which is, you know, it just is not the case. You know, we've got overproduction alongside um malnutrition and hunger it's not you know it's not um you know we don't need to produce more cheap food in order to 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 prevent hunger we need to rethink um you know the nature of people's 
access to to food and and sort of access to employment and so on and that i think has to be you know going back to the point about the proportion of people in agriculture ultimately we can't follow this kind of global north development pattern so to some extent that has to be within agriculture not you know not a narrative of getting people out of agriculture yeah i mean it seems like mambio's biggest blind spot in that argument is it kind of makes sense it makes more sense at least if you're assuming that you do have one or two percent of the population involved with agriculture and 98 percent not and then yeah on, you know on net lower prices mean you know a lot of urban residents maybe get cheaper food but that's making already a big assumption that urbanization this these levels of urbanization are a good thing and that, that they're going to continue uh, the energetic underpinning of that will continue etc and that just seems like a a faulty premise you know yeah well it's a big assumption you know he talks in his book about you can't argue with arithmetic you know you can't argue with the arithmetic that we have um you know the majority of the world being urbanized and it's kind of a strange you know it's not you know, that hasn't arisen for arithmetic reasons you know it's arisen for kind of historical and political and economic reasons which um you know which which can and will change i think you know so it's um yeah the, the, there's um and again jim thomas's um nice piece you know he takes um takes to task some of the studies that george you know george cites some studies to say look you know we you know the 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 flow of food is so um kind of you know, distant and um you know from where people are living that there's no there's no alternative but industrial food chains and that i mean to the extent that he's right that's really scary because i think um you know the degree of urbanization or urbanism that we have is very dependent on um very insecure kind of energy and material flows and and geopolitical kind of you know um a, a, a sort of tenuous geopolitical agreements that i can't see surviving um but it's also not entirely true that um you know that the supply chains are quite as um lengthy as 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 he argues because he's 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 kind of in you know invoking he's sort of trying to make assertions about the studies he's he's drawing on which is not really what the studies are saying so you know we could go into that in more detail maybe but yeah that, but but i think that assumption you know that i mean it's sort of interesting like what you've just said jason and what josh was saying earlier that you know there is this kind of assumption that urbanism and cheap abundant energy are, are just a kind of non-negotiable reality of of the world going forward and you know um i, I just think they're not that's not true you know maybe it, it would be a good thing if they were possibly but um but it, it's just not the case and we need to you know we we need to grasp that as as quickly as we can i think on this uh on this question about urbanization um there's there's something there's an argument that george was making that i was kind of like cocked my head sideways and i was like wait a minute and it was something along the lines of you know um outside of cities there are these huge expanses of land like the steppes and all this kind of place that are agriculturally productive and they're very sparsely settled you know and i'm like cool <laughs> awesome <laughs> you know like okay so there's land available and it's agriculturally productive so it's, it seems like the answer kind of presents it, it wasn't the, obviously wasn't the point that that he was <laughs> making well i'm like oh good then there's land and you can produce food on it so you know maybe things aren't as bad as we thought um uh i hadn't put this on my list of topics but i wanted to kind of po pose this to both you guys um um 
in terms of so I find in, in some of George's writing and 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 in a lot of environmental writing and the environmental vibe today, there there seems to be an intensification of, of urgency of like imminent catastrophe. It's like doomerism, but it's different than like I I feel like I went through my stage of being sort of panicked about it's all going to go down, you know that probably for me peaked around the economic crisis of two thousand eight two thousand nine. I'm like this is it, it's all going down and peak oil and all that. And then things kind of got metastable again. And I was persuaded by John Michael Greer's idea that it takes a long time to really collapse. And there's sort of stair step, uneven kind of descent and that kind of stuff. So I'm more in that. So I'm like, I feel like I'm not personally an alarmist, but I'm he I'm hearing a lot of alarmist arguments. And especially I'm hearing a lot of alarmist arguments around climate change. And it's not that I believe that climate change is not a problem. I think it is. I think that we're not going to do anything about it because it's so structural to our whole system that to meaningfully do something about it, we have to change the whole system that we're in. And we're currently not showing any signs of being willing to do that. And in terms of the severity of the urgency of it, you know, I think on the scale of this century, you know, sure. But I kind of feel like problem to me, like uh, war, you know, like there's all these wars going on now. You know, the United States has been involved in this proxy war in Ukraine. Now we've got stuff going off in the Middle East again heating up. There's a lot of saber rattling with China and all these kind of things. So I, I feel like my sort of order of, you know, what could potentially be an urgent catastrophe would be some kind of big World War III or possible nuclear weapons exchange. And then I would say after that, some kind of major financial calamity that, you know, uh, takes down a big section of the global economy. Um, and nobody knows what to do about it. And then I feel like things like climate change are a problem, but are spread out, you know, over a longer future. So that's kind of my picture. I was wondering what you guys think. One about is sort of like, how do you, you know, in terms of like, what's, what's urgent, what's acute versus what's more chronic and long-term. And mm, I guess I feel I'm a little bit concerned about for example, some of the alarmism around climate change not being what it seems in the sense that if a lot of, you know, people could get real head up about the climate emergency, does that open the doorway to, you know, more top down restrictive policies from governments? Is that, that there's sort of a political dynamic going on there? And I almost feel like in some of George's writing, he's kind of like, look, this is so urgent. We don't have time for arguments. Put your facts away. We have to do this, you know? So what is, what's behind this like climate urgency? Because it's a big problem and it is urgent, but it's, I don't think it's as urgent as other calamities we're facing. So what do you guys think about that? I think it's pretty urgent, but um, I think where a lot of the frustration lies is what to do about it. Uh, and, you know, the the George Monbios of the world, um, you know, if, if you know, I, I do worry that it'll be used as a, an excuse for kind of top down technocratic entrenchment, right, and justification. Um, you know, I think in an ideal world, it, we we would see kind of not just climate, but energy and material throughput, and we would eventually come to the conclusion that we need an agrarian future, right? We need to move towards an agrarian future more localist future, right? Uh, it would be lovely if the climate emergency was, you know, was used to to make an argument for that kind of lifestyle change. But I do worry, uh, and I think a lot of the skeptics of climate change are, are maybe 
not so skeptical of the science as they are of you know what the political reaction will be and you know they might see it as justification for you know uh disrupting say, say if they're you know more more rural lifestyle you know disrupting that shuffling them off into the cities you know for whatever reason um maybe because their their carbon footprint is according to one calculation is lower or something so i i think i, I think that's the bigger concern for me i mean it's not you know I, I do see climate change as as urgent but what we do about it is really important and a lot of people don't have the right prescriptions yeah i mean i guess i am possibly more concerned about climate change um than you josh um i mean it, i think it's going to be very uneven in its effects i mean uh, but you know we're talking about you know pretty big temperature increases um over a short time frame and and you know i think that you know it, it's partly the um you know can we keep sustaining you know the massive sort of storms and floods and fires and 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 sort of bouncing back from them and then you know we've had these huge temperature increases in the atlantic this year so you know you get this kind of scary stuff about the you know the ocean currents the amok sort of can sort of shut down over a relatively short time period and then you know we're talking about um sort of you know herding reindeer where i live kind of thing you know maybe not quite but you know so um so you know that concerns a bit but but i think it is the kind of meta crisis kind of thing it's like there's all these different things going on there's you know there's climate there's energy futures there's um like you say sort of war and i think you know geopolitical conflict and you know even in terms of you know sort of historically in the last hundred odd years the us has sort of um kept the global peace and the cold war kind of set the terms of that and and you know we're now in a much more multipolar world with you know sort of china and the, and um you know the the situation in russia and india and so on and you know that can go in all sorts of you know quite problematic ways um but i agree with you about the sort of top down the, the fear of the top down i mean you know my my argument is always bottom up you know building local um community resilience you know so um uh, you know when i i've done a few sort of conservative podcasts with people who are sort of flatly uh, you know flatly denial of climate change and you know you hear a lot about obama buying a beach house so you know climate change can't be real whereas you know my view is that he's rich enough to um you know <laughs> to buy several houses to to um you know to to accommodate lots of different possibilities um but there is, I mean, that is a thing with George's writing. And, you know, I wrote a blog post where I called it the eco-modernist doom flip. And and there is, you know, there is a strange structure to the book where the first half of the book is like all these terrifying things that are happening. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about, which is close to George's heart, is a biodiversity crisis and, you know, collapsing natural ecosystems, which, you know, quite apart from any ethical considerations about other other organisms you know can react back on humans in all sorts of what you know people having to like hand pollinate crops and so on and you know um you know that would be real sort of uh back to the land agrarianism but um but yeah there is this strange 
technocratic top-down logic where you know and i think george's book illustrates it where the first half of the book he kind of scares the hell out of you with you know all of these terrible outcomes that are happening but then it's sort of i don't know if it's like a publishing phenomenon where writers you know we're sort of under pressure to sort of have a happy ending but it's sort of like but don't worry because um you know kind of your earlier point josh they will think of something and and you know and in the case of george's book what they you know it what they will think of is quite thin really i mean all he really has i mean you know one thing he has is um extolling the virtues essentially of small scale local mixed farming so i'm like yeah great i agree with that but that is going to involve um de-urbanization it's going to involve more people on the land you know the only technology that he talks about that seems remotely capable of rescuing um you know a a, a, a kind of uh, um the existing levels of urbanism you know is the is the bacterial um um synthesis and that's just so problematic energetically and in and in many other ways um but yeah that the, so there does seem to you know I, I i do understand that fear of the sort of um you know overstating the dangers in order to impose a a, a technocratic solution and and i and i fear that it will happen you know there will be more there will be more kind of eco authoritarian regimes you know as because i agree with you you know we're not really doing anything about it you know it's not really within our existing um sort of suite of political ideas and narratives to fundamentally change this but i think fundamental change will happen because it will have to happen but the more that we kind of don't address it um you know when we have the ability to to address it in a kind of you know thoughtful way you know it, it's going to happen in all sorts of chaotic ways that will breed the conditions for you know authoritarianism of one kind and another so um so yeah i i guess i am quite fearful but i recognize the you know the way you framed it i think is right that that you know it's important not to let it become an excuse for kind of top down you know big governmental sort of control kind of stuff and that's exactly my fear with um you know with technologies like manufactured food i mean you know the food system is pretty corporately concentrated as it is but still there's a lot of you know small farms gardens you know local food production you know if we um if if we sort of put our faith in these technocratic means and say oh no we we need to get people out of the countryside you know leave it to nature you know synthesize um food with um um you know through manufacturing methods you know we really are handing control to to the to the kind of corporate government nexus which i think will be disastrous josh maybe this is an opportunity to talk about your your kind of model of bioregional self-provisioning because this seems like an alternative perhaps that you know uh, you could build a coalition around especially looking at it from the perspective of the global north and global south you want to you want to talk about that and kind of present that for discussion yeah really briefly so the the idea of bioregional self-provisioning really all i did was i took like chris's idea of a small farm future and because i've worked in international sustainable development and i've been concerned you know for a lot of my adult life with how our political economic processes in the developed world affect you know, poor people in, in developing countries, so to speak, and seeing the connections there, <clears throat> seeing how 
wealth in the form of energy and resources and cheap labor and even actual money wealth is extracted kind of like a pump extracting wealth from the poor peripheral regions and this is not just like um so-called developing countries but even like a big country like the united states we have these nodes of affluence of super affluence we call super zip codes where like the most powerful wealthy people congregate and then we have these huge peripheral zones like where jason and i live now in southern appalachia or in the rust belt or in the midwest and areas that have been that are like a whole different economic universe from like the coastal you know um more affluent more powerful connected areas and so i see this process of extraction of, of physical wealth and resources and exploitation of labor from these peripheral zones to create the affluence in these these affluent zones and so my and and i because i have a background in natural science and engineering i think of everything in very physical <clears throat> energy and resource terms like uh mass and energy balance conservation of matter all that kind of stuff and so you know my sense is that you know the people in the affluent classes if you look at it on a materials basis are responsible for more consumption and more emissions disproportionate to a lot of the poor people around the world so my thought is that if the people living in the affluent sectors of the world can begin to transition to a process of self-provisioning based on their local ecosystems their local resources using regenerative agriculture or whatever you know trying to form whatever kind of economy makes sense for that bioregion and can start to sustain themselves off of that instead of depending on affluence provided to them through these extractive processes then that would alleviate pressure on the so-called poor regions of the world so that the people in zambia or thailand or india or brazil or wherever can make better use of their own resources and their own labor to for, to to produce their own sustenance rather than having all that extracted from them to to feed, to feed people elsewhere so i just kind of looked at it through you know the idea basically that and it's how i've always thought about you know sustainable development projects in the professional sustainable development sector there's a lot of gimmicky stuff that's like oh we're inventing te technologies for poor people and there's like gimmicky water filters and stuff like that that you can never imagine somebody you know using themselves or depending on themselves but they're perfectly willing to make it design it have it mass manufactured in china you know and basically helicopter drop it over an african country and expect people to do it not know you know any, any any of the issues with it but i remember years and years ago reading from wendell berry something about the subsistence principle that we ought to be willing to live by the technologies that we advocate so i kind of view it like i you know i don't work on stuff for poor people i work on stuff that ideally makes sense for anyone who's trying to meet their needs in a sustainable and self-reliant way using local resources you know using their own skills and their materials that are available to them locally and that sort of thing so the bioregional self-provisioning idea is just that you know if us in the rich world can begin to depend more on ourselves and our local ecosystems for sustaining our lives that'll relieve pressure on all these people in places currently being exploited to provide for our lifestyle that we're that we're currently dependent on so it's an idea of, of how to break that link and my thought is i mean i pre i have like i have no faith in a global economy i have no faith in governments i have no faith in like the top down to administer the kind of solutions that we need so i feel more like those of us who kind of see can see these problems or maybe can break things down this way, we can begin right away to try to start delinking ourselves from these exploitive and unsustainable systems and start to build resilient systems, start to build 
like local economies. And I feel like I have a lot of friends that would say, well, that's really great, Josh. I love the idea of like living off a local economy, but I look around, I don't see one. There's nothing, there's nothing around for me to do that. You know, it's like, well, right. Because nobody has made it yet. Like it got extirpated by globalism and we have to rebuild it. And my thought is if, if we, if we can start to rebuild those of us who can kind of go out front and start to rebuild this kind of stuff and it's attractive, it's engaging, it's healthy. It grounds people in an ecosystem and in a community, and it has a lot of attractive factors. Then it will be naturally attractive for people say, Hey, that's really cool. What people are doing. I want to join up with that. And you know, this whole conversation up to this point has been like, okay, here's all these people out there who they think we're crazy. They think we're stupid. They're haters. They don't take our arguments seriously. They don't believe in the solutions that we're proposing, you know, and I'm kind of banging on say, Hey, Hey, listen, listen, again, it kind of getting nowhere. Well, there's probably a massive population of people that would happily embrace this kind of stuff if they knew how to get connected with it. If, if they're, if they found, I mean, there's so many, like all the cool stuff I've ever done in my life is because I happened to meet somebody who was already doing something like that. And I went, Whoa, you can do that. Oh, that's amazing. I want to do something like that. I just had to be shown that it was possible because I might not have the wherewithal to, to, to do it myself until I saw it being developed. So like, I want to hear from you, Chris, especially, and also Jason, um, how can we like sort of develop the seed crystal, right? Like rather than beating our heads on the wall, trying to get George Mambio or whoever to change their mind, let's just say, okay, we'll agree to disagree. You know, that's fine. That's fine. We have lots of allies and there's, there's huge swaths of people that might be interested to work on this kind of stuff. How do we, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, make people aware of it? How do we make it attractive? What has worked in your, in your uh, experience and in, in, in try to kind of build a movement? Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the real big tough nut to crack. And, um, and I agree with, you know, I, I totally agree with the way you framed it. And I think also, I've just been reading Amitav Ghosh's book, The Nutmeg's Curse, which is a great book, which puts a lot of this sort of stuff into global geopolitical perspective. And one of his points is that, you know, you talk to people in global South countries and they're kind of like, well, why should I, you know, why should I not aspire to a more energy rich middle class lifestyle when you look at those people in, in the States or in Western Europe? So, you know, I think it's really important, you know, for us to walk the talk in that sort of way that, you know, if we expect people in, um, you know, in, 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 you know, more populous countries in the global south, not to, you know, not, not to kind of increase their fossil footprint, we've got to cut ours big time. But how to do that, you know, the difficulty is partly there's so much surplus capital in the global economy, which tends to find its way into land um, values, you know, and, and and there's a generational inequity there. So, I mean, it's really interesting your point earlier, you know, the point about good agricultural land that's sparsely populated, because that, you know, in some sense, I think it needs um, people... You know, you get into these very difficult arguments here about incomers and gentrification and, you know, sort of settler colonialism, which Gosha's book is very much about. But ultimately, I think we need people to be, you know, um, moving to places where, you know, they can generate an agrarian livelihood. And, and, and obviously that has to be done within the context of 
you know what's already going on there but you know equally there's a lot of big scale farmers who are not particularly happy you know there's a lot of land that's basically being devoted to 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 farming commodity crops by people who've been sort of pushed into that and you know you do see farmers sort of getting interested in bringing more people into you know onto their land stacking enterprises you know trying to develop local economies more so you know it's, it's not an entirely closed door i think um a, a, a lot of that um but yeah it's difficult i mean i think um you know I, I there is encouragement i think among young people a lot of young people are you know not as uh, you know much more interested in um environmental issues and food issues and much less attracted to the sort of mainstream career kind of working for the man sort of thing because they see you know that that's a road to nowhere i think there's a lot of older people you know what a, a thing that i would really really like to see and i've sort of had conversations with people and I'd, I'd love to see this happen is there's a lot of older people who have been the beneficiaries through their careers of you know this kind of inflated sort of capital in the system who have a lot of wealth and what i would love to see is small towns and communities reappropriating you know their surrounding land you know peri-urban space um, um and, and what you could do is use the some of the accumulated capital of people of goodwill living in those places who want to support you know a local agrarian economy or you know a, a more of an autarkic local economy um i mean obviously you get into issues of inheritance and uh, and, and and you know um the you know handing on to the kids and so on but you know i think there's a lot of potential there it has to be done very carefully there's all sorts of ways it can go wrong and there's all sorts of ways in which i think intergenerational tensions can be problematic but i think you know that's what i would really like to see you know i think there is inevitably going to be conflict over access to land in the future in a way that we kind of haven't had over the last um you know century or so in the in the rich countries because you know land ownership has not been meaningful in terms of of um economic well-being but ultimately it is you know you know some people say it's kind of the only ultimate source of wealth um and so trying to sort of um draw people into um you know caring about their community and using the assets they have sort of pooling them in thoughtful ways um uh, and 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 then sort of bringing you know bringing younger people into that uh, you know i think there's 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 potential there but still at the moment you know the economics of food production are not that great you know it's hard to make um you know it's 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 hard to make it um you know commercially as a as a food small food producer or any scale food producer in the rich countries so um but you know again i think you know it's a long sort of thankless task in a way um there are ways you know there are ways around that really mobilizing the community around you know community supported agriculture type ventures or going d down more that kind of amateur route or part time route where um you know you're um you, you know you are producing food um potentially just for your household but you know you're doing something else as well but you know kind of easing our way into that and, and you know i think there is more of an openness and um uh you know and, and maybe um you know connecting with um 
you know maybe it's a bit of a sort of middle class thing the whole kind of environmental concern but there's a lot of you know there's a wider constituency of people who are interested in gardening you know who are interested in um you know some level of self-reliance so sort of connecting across those divides um so you know there's there's things that are happening and that can happen you know i really do think that 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 kind of um mobilizing communities around their local land and starting to think about them as as being you know productive of of um you know for local needs is a is a really key way to go but you know i can't honestly be sound uh you know well given this is the doomer optimism podcast you know, i'm somewhere between the the optimist and the doomer on this one that you know like you say there are so many forces that are pushing against that um but you know i mean that's that's those are the sort of places that i would i would want to start you know yeah i don't have anything i guess too insightful to add just to note that you know i was actually kind of pleasantly surprised this semester in my sustainable development classes how many students uh resonated with kind of the sustainable agriculture stuff right agroecology permaculture etc um just the feedback I got in essays and other projects, it seemed actually, I, I'm not sure if they're sure, I'm not, I don't know this for sure, but it seems like the interest seems to be more this semester. And I don't know if that's indicative of anything uh, in terms of a potential pathway solution. Um, you know, we've had a few discussions on this podcast about access to land, um, you know, and, and various mechanisms. And, and the question always comes up of like, is it more of a demand problem right now or more of a supply problem, right? Are are there, you know, are there just throngs of people wanting to get into agriculture and gardening and they can't get access to the land? Or is there just not enough general interest and we could find a way to get access to land if there was a general interest? And it's probably a mix of both, but, you know, uh, we, we had a recent podcast with Andrew Millison. He's a permaculture educator. And we asked this question and I was saying like, you know what? What is the solution for access to land? Is it is it agricultural reserves? Is it land reform? Is it community land trust? Is it this that? And you're saying, well, you know, what I'm seeing is that actually, kind of what you're saying, Chris, is that there's he's seeing a lot of situations arising where young people team, you know, kind of um, team up with you know older landholders who don't have say. Uh, interested kids to pass their land on to, but they want to maintain kind of, you know, kind of agrarian uh, uses of that land. And they're, they're finding ways to, to create uh, arrangements for, for young people to be stewards, tenant farmers or whatever, maybe with the thing where they'll eventually take it over. And, you know, it kind of changed my, I was thinking for a while, okay, it's mainly an access problem. Uh, but now I'm kind of thinking that you're right, Chris, if, if more and more people are wanting to get access to land, like we'll find a way, right? Whether it's just these informal arrangements that we create and then eventually getting the political, building up the political coalition and political will to do more structural changes. Um, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic about it than I have been in the past. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think, I, I, I just think that you're right. A lot of young people are interested and that they will continue to be. And I think, I think we will find a way. Um, either just you know uh through informal arrangements and eventually political you know political pathways as well mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, a Gene Logston wrote quite a good thing about this a while back where, you know, he was saying how there was this narrative of, you know, the generation, well, I'm getting quite old now, but the generation above me was sort of like, nobody wants to work on the land, you know, and, and that was very much a kind of reaction either to the sort of you know the the pioneering settler experience or the kind of you know here in the UK more of an experience of being a sort of under the thumb of the the aristocracy uh, you know and, and and sort of but I think you know that is changing generationally because it's almost like you know nobody wants to work as an accountant anymore sort of thing you know and, and be part of you know that but there is uh, you know I, may, I mean I think it, these arrangements with landowners and so on are, are, are great and we've sort of tried to do that there is a difficulty potentially you know you've got to get the the social side of that is so important and it does take you know there's a real lack of skills um uh, you, you know like here in the uk traditionally we've had a lot of east european labor coming in to to work on farms and you know the the sort of normal narrative around that is oh well you know western europe it's a stronger economy people come here because they you know you can earn more money but also um yeah you know they have the skills they actually know how to farm <laughs> in a way that a lot of people in western europe have, have sort of lost that skill and it's not only the the sort of technical farming skills but also a kind of a sense of what a working agrarian day is like you know where uh, and i think that's where the intergenerational ten tension can come in where if somebody is the landowner and you don't have you know you don't have complete buy-in to um you know you know it might be that you've got a sort of long some sort of security of tenure but there's still that sense of well i'm not really you know i'm, I'm, I'm not really the person that is benefiting from this or you know you get that more kind of sort of employee type of mindset rather than you know now you know I've I'm actually you know got to drive this project with all my heart so I think you know there are some difficulties around that but I agree with you Jason that uh, you know I think yeah you, you know there is um uh the, you know things have changed and i think that you know there is there is encouragement um in the younger generation and it can be quite radical you know there was a group here in the uk called reclaim the fields um they, they wanted to have a meeting at our holding which i was a bit nervous about in case they sort of uh enacted their um you know their their, their slogan but you know they occupied a a farm a, a bit of farmland and it turned into a big sort of confrontation with you know someone inevitably popped up who then claimed to be the landowner you know it, it had been you know a, a sort of land of unknown ownership and then it turned into this big standoff but you know in some ways i think things like that can be quite generative and and you know i mean i'm not i'm, I'm not in favor of, of of sort of arbitrary confiscations of land but i think those of us who are lucky enough to own land you know we need to you know we need to start being a little bit more self-critical about the nature of ownership and the need to you know the need to sort of bring more people sort of in, into that fold in, in whatever ways we can but equally some onus on people coming into this you know not to expect this to be a, a an easy life you know so you mentioned that in the UK there's uh there's like a lot of did you say Eastern European people who like migrants who come in and do a lot of the farm work and stuff? Yeah, historically we, but you know, having, having sort of left the EU, we've, um, we kind of, <laughs> that's been a big issue, you know, okay. in terms of Brexit. Yeah. So there's a lead in what, um, so, you know, I was 
spend a lot of time around universities and stuff like that. And so when I'm asking a lot of these questions, I'm kind of thinking, I'm kind of coming at it like, well, how can we divert more college students into this kind of thinking and this kind of life path from the going more going to the professional path or whatever? But I want to kind of break myself a little bit out of that thinking and ask if if because there are so many more demographic groups in the country than like middle class kids that turn up at university. Right. So like, are there maybe are there other groups that we're overlooking? Like I was thinking, like, would if you wanted to, to nucleate a small farm future kind of initiative project, could you go to like some of these communities of Eastern European people and be like, hey, you know, and the reason I'm kind of thinking of this is, you know, the county that I live in now, it's a real blue collar, real working class county. And I do like blue collar work from time to time to make extra money. And so I have a foot in this sort of world and of the non-college educated and you know that's actually it's it's always been like kind of a white pill experience like just i was talking about the guy i talked to at my bank the other day and one thing we we're just chatting about is oh he's planting all these fruit trees and he's doing like he's not like some galaxy brain guy on the doomer optimism podcast trying to think about the future of the world he's just mm-hmm. a guy from this area and he has a little bit of land from his family and he's getting married and he's planting fruit trees and he's like just doing these projects because they just make sense so I yeah. got inspired by just the common sense of ordinary people, you know, and the opportunities that are out there, you know, if I get outside of my box of like the sort of college grad school trajectory folks. And so yeah, do yeah. You, do you guys feel like there maybe are some other natural consist constituencies that we might overlook as a place to at least nucleate some of these kind of initiatives? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, like, yeah, like I said earlier, I think, you know, there is a sort of wider constituency of people who are into, you know, gardening and food production. Uh, I mean, one thing maybe I, I should mention, which we have here in the UK, which we really need to push at more is the whole allotment idea. So in theory, um, if every resident uh, is is able to ask their local council to provide a small plot of land you know even if you live in a in an apartment with no access to growing space you know local councils are supposed to provide a a a small plot of land you know they tend to have a you know a few acres here and there and they'll divide it up you know into small plots of land and people can ask and and, you know you pay a kind of peppercorn rate like um you know like sort of i don't know thirty dollars a year or something um and you know you can grow food on it it's supposed to be non-commercial and that you know in theory councils are supposed to provide that but often they don't and the pressure is always to turn land into residential land because obviously you can you know you can monetize it so much more but people i think really need to pressurize their councils and and councils also historically have had county farm estates where the idea is that you can you know get uh, become a new entrant into farming by having a, a, a small farm on publicly owned land and uh, you know i'm sure the politics are very different in the us but you know here in the uk we really need to push it it's almost like a hangover from the past sort of post world war one when you know a lot of veterans returning and a lot of poverty and government you know this attempt to sort of make it possible for people to produce food for for themselves but that's still there and it's kind of not necessarily this kind of graduate middle class sort of you know environmental concern route so definitely pushing at that but also yeah you know ethnic um communities that 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 you mentioned and again i think 
again i think that's changing generationally where you know a lot of people you know the 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 the, the, the made sort of ethnic groups in the uk you know have re relatively recent um origins moving to the uk and tending to be urban and almost like you know i mean i did some work years ago sort of 25 30 years ago and uh, you know with some surveys of of different minority groups in birmingham and a lot of them were like why would i want to grow for you know i came here to get away from that <laughs> whereas i think that you know their kids are actually connecting with you know their um sort of family food traditions and sort of getting much more interested in um you know the sort of diversity of of, of food cultures and, and sort of food narratives generally so i think you know tapping into that kind of sense of of you know food cultures is is a good way to go um but you know there is yeah we do need to sort of get um food education um better established with you know with kids from from a young age but yeah you know there there are definitely constituencies that you know that we can draw on there and 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 sort of try to pressurize um you know land availability it shouldn't necessarily have to be private owners all the time um you know and you know working with bigger scale farmers and working with um local government really you know national government tends to be a, a dead loss i think but you know you can get you know you can get good thoughtful people operating at, at, at kind of city level you know or, or or sort of you know lower levels in the political hierarchy where you can push some of these things yeah i mean josh as you know as well as i and, and your experience kind of bears out that you know i think a lot of blue collar people in this region like it's just that that's just part of their life. Like it's it's kind of it's kind of common sense. Uh, it's 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 not a boutique thing. It's you know hunting, fishing, you know raising some animals, gardening. Like that's that's the that's very ideal. And include you know in addition to their full time job usually. Um, and so I think it's a it's a matter of you know how do, how do we connect with with you know those kinds of people and you know be seen as allies and not as say rural gentrifiers right um i think that's a big challenge here right where uh you know we're 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 doing some things that are somewhat different right <laughs> and thinking about regenerative agriculture and permaculture these are all very you know kind of exotic concepts i think but you know you know so i th i think for someone like me who's in a rural area college educated has various ideas not actually a lot of experience to implement them yet um you know it, for me it requires a lot of humility and and not using unnecessary fancy words around people who know much more than i do about <laughs> raising animals or whatever and so that's just uh i think that's just a process of like for me someone like me uh understanding that i have a lot to learn um and perhaps you know over time you know coalition can build out of that i mean maybe just to add on to the end of that i, I yeah i i agree i mean the situation is a little bit different here but similar um in, in some ways i mean i've found you know farmers the local farming uh community can be quite um can be quite accommodating like anyone who's sort of just doing something on the land you know um people can be quite generous around that as uh, but again that's where 
you know, I think we need to, I mean, I don't want to keep, um, um, keep criticizing George Monbiot, although I've made a bit of a career of it recently, but, um, but, you know, I really worry about those kind of books, which is that, you know, farming is, is, is sort of held up for this blame and, and ridicule and, and, um, and it's, you know, in as much as, you know, I mean, obviously that, 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 you know, the way that farming is done, you know, does cause a lot of problems, but it's partly because of the way that, you know, it's forced to fit into the wider economy. It's not necessarily individual farmers, you know, who are um, to blame. And I think it's really important to sort of try and connect with them rather than sort of come in with this. Uh, I mean, I, I possibly came in with a bit of that when I, you know, this sort of permaculture, you know, the sort of newbie permaculture person who thinks that, you know, you've done a permaculture design course and everything that people have done in the past is wrong. And you're, you know, it's, you know, you're going to kind of um, innovate your way to, you know, to, um, to, to prosperity, to ecological prosperity. So yeah, that humility point is important, I think. And you're not, you know, you're not going to be able to connect with everybody, um, but certainly, um, you know, people who are interested in, um, in, um, you know, generating a livelihood, there can be a lot of commonality across what otherwise might be political or class divides or whatever. So really trying to amplify that, I think is important. Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. We're almost at two hours. I'm sure you guys <laughs> have to do. I, I don't know if anybody has any uh, final things they want to interject into the conversation, but I definitely found this really edifying. Um, and I think that uh, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I mean, uh, the thing that stuck out to me was that the way to think about this, the amount of food that's produced by smallholders, um, meaning that we're not as far down the road of total dependence on a giant big ag industrial food chain you know, as you might think from our sort of, and especially for our experience where you know, food comes from the grocery store and all that kind of stuff. We're not as far away from that as possible. So I take that as a good omen, you know, that it would be, you know, it's not as hard as it sounds to increase the proportion of, of, of local food webs and to build, build more of our, start to transfer some of our dependence in the affluent zones to more local food webs. And I feel like I can't see a downside other than it takes time out of your day or your life from other things to, 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 to do it. But other than that, I don't see any downside of doing it. So to me, it seems positive. And I know I cued off of like, you know, this kind of ongoing argument with, with George Monbiot or whatever, but I mean, overwhelmingly it's a positive conversation and I overwhelm I, 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 you know, as much as the doomy topics come up with climate change and stuff like that, I refuse. I'm still an optimist. I'm still excited about what we're working on. I feel like there's way more exciting possibilities than there are things to fret and worry about. So I don't know if you guys have any response, any responses to that, but I feel a great reason for enthusiasm. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, you can we can debate all day whether you know a small farm future can feed the world, but we're not facing a binary scenario. We're facing a scenario where we can convince somebody to you know get into get into producing a little bit of the food and then you know expanding and densifying the, the local food web. And, you know, that's not, that's not this kind of highly pitched ideological, you know, uh, scenario, right? It's, it's much more kind of, you know, mundane in a way, in a good way. And, you know, and you can lead with just how, how cool it is, right? Like I was at a, 
gathering recently, you know, with other with other academics and, you know, they're not they don't grow food really. And they were all, you know, everyone I've talked to about it is interested in what I'm doing. Like they, you know, I, I get the sense that most of them wish that they could do that or have more time to do that on some degree. And so I, you know, I, it seems like a lot of people, um, you know, are attracted to the idea. They just they just can't see it for themselves yet. But the, the more people are doing it, the more capacity and you know, educational infrastructure and everything that we have, I, I do think it builds upon itself and it could become exponential at a certain point. All right, yeah, I mean, I, uh, have, a, have, a, have a final word and take us out with some uh, words of inspiration. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll just kind of in, endorse that. There are reasons to be positive and I think, um, yeah, but I do think, you know, where you came into all this with the stuff about the, peasant you know the, the the territorial food web and so on it i mean you know although i kind of said well you know let's not get too hung up on the figures i do think it's important to you know to keep accentuating the positive locally and connecting with people who are producing stuff locally but that bigger geopolitical context that we touched on is is important i think where you know there are these voices that are quite powerful in the media saying oh you know that's just like this old you know romantic kind of um stuff people hanging on to the old ways and 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 you know um you know we've got these new better ways of producing stuff and and you know as point we've been stressing is the way that this kind of global industrial food chain does actually yeah, it, it does screw local economies. It does extract um, value from local economies and concentrate it in, in fewer hands. So, you know, so this second part of the conversation we've had, I think, is great in terms of it, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we need to spread this out. We need to sort of share this around and we need to do it locally. So, yeah, there's 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 great inspiration uh, in doing that. And people are getting more drawn into it for a whole bunch of different reasons. So, you know, that's what we need to accentuate. But we do need to um, somehow or other, whether it's in direct argument or by example or whatever, sort of counter that alternative sort of, uh, you know, top down sort of, uh, you know, big industrial food chain narrative, because, um, you know, that's not going to take us to a good place. Right on, sir. Well, we're so appreciative of your time today. And uh, we will catch up with you uh, somewhere further on up the road. Yeah, great. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, great talking, Chris. Thanks again.